It's a, it's a blessing to be at Forest Hills this morning. Um, we, you have partnered with um, our teammates for a number of years, but we're an official supporting church, and we simply ran out of Sundays last fall during our final furlough to get over here. And, um, but greetings from Sherry and our kids. Um, we transitioned back, moved over from Europe last June, began furlough July through December, and through a series of events, completely unexpected and unsolicited, uh, Doug Crawford approached me with some, some needs on staff, and as we prayed about it and moved forward, um, doors opened up for adult ministries and missions, and began at West Canaan back in January, and it's been a great fit, and it's great to be in town and to fellowship and have such high regard for your church family, um, your pastoral staff, your, your elders, and um, just have great confidence in your search team as well as they, as they move forward. Well, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning. But I wonder how many have you, either this week, uh, recent months, maybe as a kind of a, a tendency in your life have struggled with sadness, or even gloom, or seeing the negative, or even despair. Or maybe you've witnessed or even expressed hostility due to passionate disagreements. Have you been plagued by worry, or failed to be grateful for anything? or lacked peace, and failed to bring that to the Lord in prayer. Well, as you, and not only as you reflect on those as indicators in your life, but also have you thought about how those play out and how a watching world interprets Christ in us in the way we respond to the circumstances among us. And there's some real challenges that we face, that we do face, that we have faced, from COVID to culture wars to elections, Proposal 3, war, particularly in Ukraine, which I know, um, like me, this touches you because you have friends in that region. Inflation, rising prices of gas and groceries, unexpected health diagnosis, a job change, whether intended or unexpected, and even the pastoral transition that your church is facing. And each of us have navigating those types of things with varying degrees of success and failure. And a passage that is a familiar passage to me, probably to you, that I have turned to a lot uh, in recent times is Philippians chapter 4. And in this, I see a clear blueprint of how we should live out our faith, especially in difficult times. Now, this being a pretty familiar text, you, there, you may not hear a lot of new information this morning. I'll acknowledge that. And so maybe this, this morning is a little bit more like a halftime pep talk. Reminders of things that you already know, challenges about what needs corrected, and some coaching to make some improvements as we move forward. But in summary, as, as I summarize and have looked at various aspects of this passage, to bring it all together into one simple statement, challenge, reminder for us this morning, is that as Christians, we are called by God to be joyful, gentle, worry-free, and grateful. And we do that through prayer, by the peace and presence of God. So join me as we look at Philippians chapter 4, 
And we'll start with just verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the first command we have here, and as we look at this, these aren't just suggestions or Paul saying, hey, hey, this would be a better way to live. But these are the expectations of you as called ones who are called out, who have been given the, the, the mercies, the grace, and the gifts of salvation and all that that entails in our lives. You are to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And he repeats it, right? And again, I say rejoice. And we think of a, a number of the songs that we learned as kids, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, rejoice. And that, that refrain, and that, that, that kind of picks up the spirit that we are to have, and to not just sing it on a Sunday morning, but that that pervades our week and our response, and not just in the easy times, but also in the difficult times. Now, Craig did mention to me that I was maybe, um, he said, okay, Philippians 4 is fine, but we did just finish a series on Philippians. So that's good, though. That means that you have some familiarity, that joy is actually the theme of the entire book, despite where Paul was writing from. He uses joy or rejoice 12 times, specifically in 104 verses, and there's at least 10 other places where it's clearly implied that how can you not respond to this, the truths that he's stating with joy in our hearts. And as we think kind of a, as a theme to, in Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's an invitation to joy. And, and isn't it great that the Bible is realistic? We aren't given this expectation to be joyful from a position of Paul having, you know, being on that mountaintop and enjoying everything. Everything's going right. Everything according to plan. All the comforts. Be joy. What? That's easy. Paul writing from prison. Many of his own plans has been suspended or derailed, but he's trusting in God's overseeing his circumstances for his good and for his plan. And so we can see that. And in fact, there are other examples, just kind of a simple survey through the, through the scriptures, where joy or rejoicing are placed in the context of difficult situations. Psalm 30 John 16, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, 1 Peter 4. We have this idea to rejoice even though. And in an article with that title, Brian Tabb writes, Philippians draws attention to various challenges to joy, such as prison, opponents, grumbling, and disunity. But Paul rejoices in the Lord always, even though he sits in prison, maligned by his enemies, hearing reports of sin and strife among his friends, 
His joy is not anchored in circumstances, but in his Savior. His Savior who will never disappoint him and who will surely deliver him. And so we have this idea of joy even in the midst of challenge. Another familiar text as we think about joy simultaneously with not an easy time, we see in James, another familiar text in James 1. Count it all, and I'm kind of lost on the clicker, so I'll let you catch up or turn it off. But, um, but James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And in my Bible, I had written a note. I don't know if it was a quote or it was from my devotional life, so it's not attributed. But I wrote that joy comes from maturity, which results in submissiveness to God and his sovereign will. Instead of my own self-centered perspective on my circumstances. Another real-life example of this, one that your church family knows, is Dan Cook. And as Dan and Kelly walked through her leukemia, and at the same time they had co-workers who were walking through pancreatic cancer, Cal and Carol Clark, who oversaw Brazil. But both of those couples, as they were transparent in walking through those journeys that ultimately led to the homegoing of Kelly Cook as well as Cal Clark, They both said that we are going to choose joy. Wow. And through the the difficult doctor's appointments and through the side effects of the treatment and all of the things that aren't comfortable, aren't easy, not what they planned, leading even to the death of their spouse. Carol Clark, Dan Cook, said that we are going to choose joy And it wasn't just something that they put out for their their prayer supporters or for their their financial supporters or their ministry partners. It was something that as you interacted with them was true. That despite all of the heartache, all of the pain, all of the suffering, they chose joy because of their Savior. Of course, it's our Savior who sets that example for us. In Hebrews chapter 12 looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. As he is laboring in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. In agony, and yet not my will, but yours. For the joy of fulfilling the will of his Father, for the joy of the plan of redemption that was being put into place, for our salvation, he did that. And it's that, that joy, that's not based on our circumstances, not based on the things that we can control, but it's our choice to be joyful and to rejoice in the Lord always. Jesus, as he was talking about his call and and coming to, to, to reach the sheep in John 10, he says, I came that they, the sheep, might have life and have it abundantly. And one of the translations says that they might have life with joy and abundance. And of course, the Psalms are replete with calls to joy. One of the best known in Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
We are called to joy. And even as we get very close to Advent season and the Advent themes of hope and peace and love and joy, we think that the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is where our joy is found. That is where our joy is rooted, and that makes our joy possible. And so if we are in Christ, our lives should be marked by joy, not gloom, not complaint, not negativity, not what-ifs. And that joy should be regardless of our present circumstances, whether personal or societal. Well, the text continues with the next challenge to that of gentleness. Let your reasonableness, or other translations, your gentle spirit, being gentle, let that be known to everyone. And I think this one gets lost a lot of times in list of Christian characteristics. It kind of sits there, kind of quiet, meek, gentle. It doesn't promote itself. It's not really in the, the American zeitgeist of gentleness, and, you know, a rugged individualism and insert your rights. But we are called to be gentle. One writer says that the biblical qualities of meekness and gentleness are misunderstood and undervalued in today's society of extremes, where all too often people tend to, A, angrily overreact, or B, passively underreact. Sound familiar? Have you seen that? He continues in talking about the relationship of meekness and gentleness, that gentleness refers mostly to our actions, Whereas meekness refers to our attitude, one's whole state of mind as well as actions, meekness, that attitude, produces gentleness. And as you think of the world we live in that's saturated with social media, political discourse, maybe your own tendencies, are you characterized by gentleness? Are we characterized by speaking not just the truth, but speaking the truth in love. Proverbs 51 says that a soft or a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I wonder how many times has that level of discourse just continued to spiral downwardly, even among believers who speak into it, and instead of speaking a soft word or a gentle word or speaking the truth with a heart of love toward the audience, that we contribute to that by speaking harshly and not really considering that not only is it our opinion that might be rooted wherever, but that as we do so, we are a representation of Christ as part of that dialogue and that we are called to be gentle. One of the words that comes to mind that is kind of an older English word, but that of winsome. Uh, In fact, you know, whatever happened to winsome? And as you think of uh, the dictionary definition of to be attractive or appealing in a fresh and innocent way. But to be attractive and appealing. Do we frame our arguments? Do we frame our countenance? Do we keep in, in mind our composure and how we come across as we engage with a coworker, in a chat room, with a neighbor? Even as we share truth with them, are we being winsome? 
In Colossians 4, Paul is giving you the challenge. He says, you know, pray for me that I might speak to those, that God might give me opportunities. And he gives the instructions, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned as it were with salt, that it's a preserving, it's an attracting, that the way that we communicate is very important. Uh, I'm, I'm working through a study right now on our Sunday evenings called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And if you're familiar at all with Peacemaker Ministries, it just provides some very practical instructions on how you do that. But it's not only the, the, for the result of resolving conflicts, but one of the, the main things that they begin at the, be, at the start with is that how we engage in conflict as believers oftentimes gives us an opportunity not only for Christian testimony, but for public witness. That as we reflect the mindset of Christ, as we, not that we, we deny truth, but we sometimes we even give up our own rights in order to see the relationship, that there be reconciliation, more than simply the resolution of a conflict. That is this aspect that we are being gentle in spirit and that that be known to everyone, that our lives are marked by, boy, boy there's, there's a calming influence. They speak truth, but boy, there's a calmness there. And it's not just a superficial calmness, and it's not something we produce in and of ourselves, but it's because it's rooted in the love of God and his, his security of our salvation that we draw from. A recent book that uh, an area pastor used for a sermon series, particularly in the midst of COVID, is called Christians in an Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. And I think that kind of sums up what we're called to be in this area. That as spirit-filled believers, our lives should be marked by gentleness. Well, the next line that we come to is that of being anxiety-free or worry-free. Do not be anxious about anything. And there are things that I think this, there, there are things that we need to be concerned about, obviously. But there's that anxiety, that level, that, that worry or anxiety is dominating it, is controlling us. That's what we're focused on, focusing on, to not be consumed by that. A parallel text in 1 Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We kind of get caught up in our own agendas or our own reputation or the things that we want to control. And the response to humble ourselves, but then verse 7 Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so much time that that anxiety or that worry is because we feel like we need to be in control. We're the ones that need to change the circumstances. We're the ones that need to, to, to fix it. As opposed to simply humbling ourselves, recognizing God's sovereignty, his control. But ultimately, the end of that verse, his care for us. He's aware. He knows. He's got us in his hand. He's going to bring us through. And so those aspects of worry don't need to consume us. That idea of casting all your anxieties on him. Kind of a strategy that someone taught me recently, maybe a few years ago. But that at whatever those thoughts are that seem to consume us, simply turn those worries, which are usually about our own machinations in our head, what to do, turn those worries into prayers. So if it's about the family budget, or if it's about getting, getting the, the, the 
kids to get along with each other. Whatever that is, instead of just kind of thinking and rehashing what happened and what happened and what happened, we simply reflect that, God, this is what I'm worried about right now. This is what's causing me anxiety. I need to release it to you. I've run out of ideas. I've run out of strategies. I can't fix this. And to recognize that, okay, maybe God's not calling us to fix it. God's calling us to, to rest and to trust and to release it and to cast that anxiety upon him. And so we turn our worries into prayers. The other great example of this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, is Jesus uses the examples to not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, you're about, about your body, what you wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And for those of you who use the, use the children's storybook Bible, uh, it's kind of one of those, a uh, little bit of humor injected, and it asks the question, have you ever seen birds at the mall or with a grocery cart? And have you, have you ever seen the flowers going into a store to buy clothing? And, and kids, kids kind of get, kind of helps them to picture. But that's the, that's the idea. They don't. And that's what Jesus is calling us back to. They simply trust. And so that is what we are to do as well. Verse 31 of Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, verse 34. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then as we think about what is consuming us, are we worried? Are we anxious? Are we thinking about that worst-case scenario? And, and, you know, I know um, sometimes particularly mothers can do that. Uh, Mine does on occasion. It's like, why are you so worried about it? It's like, well, this could have happened. But that's not what we're called. Today has enough worry for itself to stay in the present and to trust God. Colossians, in Colossians 3, we see a lot of parallels to Philippians 4. And in verse 15, it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And, and we're going to get to peace again here in this, in Philippians 4. But I think that's the aspect that really challenges not to be anxious. Let that peace rule your heart. That as you're prone to worry or to anxiety, we draw on that peace. Let that govern our thoughts, and our minds. Let that peace influence and to to remove the worry that we are prone to absorb. And so as children of a gracious Heavenly Father and a sovereign God, our lives should not be marked by worry or anxiety regardless of our circumstances, either personal or societal. Well, the fourth challenge that we come to is to be grateful. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We see that illustrated again, that parallel passage in Colossians 3 begins and let the verses 15 through 17, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So even corporately as a church, not to worry. As a fellow brother and sister, how do we encourage one another? Because we have been called not to worry, but to allow peace to rule. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the response. It's his word that infuses us. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so it's a corporate activity to help one another not to be anxious and to be grateful. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In three verses, we have the command to thankfulness in each one of these. Be thankful. Sing with thanksgiving. Everything you do, give thanks to God the Father. In the Psalms, I've recently been doing a study, an uh, overview of the Psalms, 35, more than 35 times, and this is just kind of a, a simple search on my, my phone app, um, 35 more, more, more times we see that in the Psalms, to be grateful, to be thank, have thanksgiving. And more, of, more than 10 of those are actually a command. It's not talking about those who are thankful. It's not a testimony. It's more in the, the psalmist is instructing the people to with him to give thanks, to enter his courts with thanksgiving. As we were finishing up our furlough last fall, one of our supporting pastors made this very important statement. He said, I think one of the greatest sins of the evangelical church in the West is the failure to be grateful and to think of all that we have. And of course, that's in the West, that's on top of all that all believers have universally in our salvation and what God has given to us. And that's where really, as we look at this list of joyful, gentle, worry-free, and grateful, that the joyful and the grateful are so clearly linked. Because our joy, even in difficult circumstances, is rooted in our gratitude to our great God and to our Savior for all of the blessings that he has bestowed upon us. And in case we think that that's just, well, that would, that would be nice, I need to be more grateful that would help me to be more joyful. And that is a very helpful thing to, to take note of and to, to build into our lives. Are we thanking God for things? Or are we taking things for granted? That we woke up this morning, that, that we got out of bed, that we were able to, to be here together, that we can worship freely, that we are not expecting stormtroopers to come through that back door and carry us off, place us under arrest, that we can go to work tomorrow. All of those opportunities, do we take them for granted? The very basics, that God has provided this and that we are grateful. But more than just an encouragement, a very interesting verse in Deuteronomy concerning judgment. And as we look at the number of things that we know that the people of Israel did poorly, idolatry, they slipped into idolatry. They were In Deuteronomy 28, 47, there's a, some kind of a summary statement. And in addition to all of these other sins that are not being minimized at all, He says that this judgment is coming because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart despite the abundance of all things. That that lack of gratitude for all that God had given to his people. There was no joy even when they were maybe performing some of the, the sacrifices. But because you did not serve me with joyfulness and gladness of heart. That is the expectation for us. It's not just external, but it's also vertical. Our worship to our God, that we have joy and gratitude. In summary, as joint heirs of Jesus, whose divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, and recipients of so great a salvation, 
our lives should be marked by gratefulness. So joyful, gentle, anxiety-free, and grateful. But how do we do that? We've made some suggestions along the way. But we're not left to manufacture these on our own. And the formula is here. To not be anxious, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is the means. Prayer is the vehicle. Prayer is the tool that gains us access to God himself. It brings us into his presence. It taps into the resources. It, it, it asks God to fulfill promises he has already made to bring those forth in our lives. The effect or the product of prayer is peace. It's the opposite of anxiety. And notice the beginning of verse 7. And the peace of God. The and follows all that's preceded in verses 4 through 6, including this call to prayer. And so, and, or because of, the effect or product of prayer is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And to see that, that, that so often, what a fr- the, the, the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and all too often that we, the things that we suffer because we do not take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what needless burdens we bear. So we don't have time this morning to focus more on prayer, but let me summarize as this. Since we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin, and since we have been granted full access to the throne of grace and a holy God that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, our lives should be marked by prayer regardless of our circumstances. And so when we're not joyful, gentle, worry-free, or grateful, we pray. But also notice the relationship of prayer, peace, and God's presence. As we look at the the final verses, verses 7 through 9. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the result, the God of peace will be with you. So we, off, we can influence the peace that we do or don't experience based on the choices that we make. And notice that verse 8 is bookended by the peace of God and the God of peace. Verse 7 begins, the peace of God. Verse 9 closes with the God of peace. And in between is verse 8. And verse 8 is probably familiar to a lot of us, and we tend to think of it in terms of our sanctification, Some of you may use it as kind of a a, a grid for television or media choices. Uh, I know there were friends of mine that had written, um, used the acronym THERPAL GROUP for True, Honorable, Right, Worthy of Praise, Excellence. And and they had that right above their television. And that became, okay, if it's not any of these things, we change the channel, we turn it off. And it's a great thing in terms of, of that. But a few years ago, a friend of mine pointed out that where it's situated between these aspects of peace show that we have an opportunity to control the peace in our minds 
by obviously by what we input. And so verse 8 becomes the opportunity for us to kind of to govern what inputs are in our hearts. And so that this peace on either end, the peace of God, the God of peace, verses 7, verses 9, that's where, that's where we live in verse 8. And if we're putting in controversies and, and, and anger and disputes and impure things, that's, the peace of Christ isn't going to rule our minds. Those are the things that are going to rule our minds. And so if we're lacking peace, we have a lot of opportunity to change that by looking at these things in this context. Practice these things, and they usher us into God's peace. The things that we watch, read, etc. And notice this aspect of peace also tied to, obviously, reconciliation in salvation. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. We are joyful in the hope of the glory of God. And of course, peace is one of the big themes of Advent. The Prince of Peace. Luke 2, peace on earth among men with whom He is well pleased. And notice one other bookend here as we look at some of the literary structure that contributes to our understanding is not just peace in verses 7 and 9, sandwiching verse 8, but the presence of God himself. Verse 5, the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. 7, 8, 9, the end of 9, the God of peace will be with you. God will be with you. God is near. God will be with you. The presence of God is very key here. God's peace and his presence. The peace that we have from God comes from God himself. Some familiar texts, but to think of it in terms of this relationship of God's peace and God's presence. In Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, peace, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, lack of peace, worry. Do not look anxiously about you. Um, another translation And why not? For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Peace comes from God's presence. Psalm 46, 10 and 11. Be still. Cease striving. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And one other example of this, a familiar text, we don't have time to read all of it, but Joshua 1, verses 5 through 9. As God has transitioned leadership from Moses, who has led the people, has given, been the conduit for God's giving of the law, to Joshua and the introduction, and God says that no man shall be able to stand before you just as I was with Moses. God's presence is, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That's the beginning of the bookend. Be strong and courageous. Have, be peaceful. Only be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. End of verse 9. God's presence is what provides the opportunity to be at peace. We enter his presence through prayer. 
And of course, also the circular that we're back to where we started, that God's presence is what gives us joy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That same article, Rejoice Even Though, one of the key thoughts. Therefore, Christian joy is the great pleasure and happiness that we feel. Whether or not the sun is shining, whether or not our team is winning, whether or not we are healthy or hurting, because our Redeemer lives, because we belong to Him, and because He is making all things new. When we encounter even though challenges... We tend to complain and lose sight of our all-sufficient Savior. We respond like the Israelites who grumbled about food only days after their exodus from Egypt. Philippians calls us to rejoice in the Lord always by reframing our present challenges in light of the awesome day of Christ and to rejoice in God's people, to take our eyes off of ourselves and pray for And pursue other people's spiritual maturity and fullness of joy in Christ. So in summary, as we look at this familiar text, these familiar verses, as Christians, we are called by God to be joyful, gentle, anxiety-free, and grateful through prayer by the peace and the presence of God himself. So in conclusion, I offer encouragement. If this morning you're struggling, God is with you. He offers peace. Because of him, you can experience joy and gentleness, freedom from worry and gratefulness, regardless of circumstances. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in fellowship. Encouragement. But also a challenge. Has your life been? a clear Christian testimony in difficult times? Are you lacking peace, joy, gentleness, freedom from worry in your attitudes and dealings with others? Confess that this morning. Seek God's forgiveness. Seek His peace and His presence that transcends our circumstances. And as we do so, we will draw people to Him. Maybe you don't know God personally this morning. And your experiences with people claiming to be Christians have not been people who are joyful, gentle, anxiety-free, or grateful. As one who professes Christ and has failed in these areas myself at times, I'd like to say I'm sorry for the gloom, hostility, anxiety, or entitlement that they may have projected. But also, if you're here this morning and don't know God, but you're seeking joy and gentleness, and lack of anxiety, and gratefulness, and peace in these difficult times, God is present. He loves you, and you can know him. And I encourage you to speak with me, or one of the leaders here this morning, that you might know Christ, and that you might have abundance of life and joy in knowing him.